Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Trevor Connor and Dr. Robert Kennefick. When our bodies need to cool down, evaporative cooling is often the best method to beat the heat. While we lose fluids and electrolytes through urine production and breathing, it's the sweat we create to fuel our evaporative cooling that's the biggest source of fluid and electrolyte loss. Some of us are efficient, sweating just enough to evaporate the heat away. Others, like myself, leave intricate patterns on our shirts and puddles on the ground, neither of which are overly helpful in cooling our bodies and, more importantly, push us closer to dehydration. To make it more complicated, not only do sweat rates differ from person to person, but your individual sweat rate can vary every day. Hydration levels, environmental conditions, acclimatization, clothing, all of these can alter both your volume of sweat and its composition, making it difficult to determine your fluid and electrolyte needs. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Robert Kennefick of Research and Development at Intrinsic Bioscience. Previously, as a researcher at the U.S. Army Institute of Environmental Medicine, hydration and sweat rates were important topics to Dr. Kennefick, who is now considered one of the top experts in the country. He'll take us through an understanding of the physiology behind sweat, and why our bodies are willing to give up both fluid and electrolytes. We'll also discuss our replacement needs and how to determine your own rehydration strategies. Joining Dr. Kennefick, we'll talk with Dr. Stacy Sims and Dr. Stephen Chung, leaders in the field of hydration and environmental exercise physiology. We'll also hear from Coach Jared Berg and Pro Tour rider for EF Education Easy Post, Alex Howes. So grab your towel and favorite sports drink, and let's make you fast. From training peaks to whoop, sifting through your data can feel like it requires a master's degree. Good news, we have those, plus over 30 years of coaching and data analysis experience. It's crucial to understand how to test and how to change your training based on your data. You go race, leave the analysis to us. Book your data analysis session now at fasttalklabs.com solutions. Well, Dr. Kanifik, it's a pleasure having you on the show. I know this is your first time being on Fast Talk, and we're really excited to talk to you. As a matter of fact, Rob and I, when we were planning for this episode, we're trying to think of good guests, and he actually has a bit of a, a history with the lab that he used to work at. Oh, tell me about that. I'm curious. It's interesting. We've almost crossed paths twice in my life. I grew up in New Hampshire. And if you grew up in New Hampshire running track, you spend a lot of time racing at the University of New Hampshire in their indoor track there because it's one of the only available in the area. Had I probably continued, you would have actually been a professor within the program at UNH during the time that I would have been going. But I developed such a hatred of that indoor field house after running a thousand <laughs> circles around it that UNH was the last place I was going to go to school. So that was number one. I eventually went to Ithaca College, and while I was there, one of the professors, a lady named Betsy Keller, had put me in touch with some people at U.S. Arium that ultimately led to what was supposed to be a job or a research opportunity my senior year of college. So I actually left college early. Ithaca graduated me early so that I could take this sort of research assistantship or whatever it was to be at the time. And unfortunately, I went home, I moved all of my stuff, and I got a phone call that was, uh, oh, we were getting your security clearance, 
And then we found out we didn't actually get funding for your position. So unfortunately, we don't have a job for you. And so I was fortunate that Ithaca would take me back and they actually hired me on as a research assistant because I had no school or anything to do at that point. So I drove back to Ithaca and I spent the last semester of what should have been my senior year as a research assistant instead of an actual student. Wow. Okay. Well, let let me first apologize for (laughs) you not... Not getting position at Ethereum. That is unfortunate, but you know, third time's a charm. So here we are. Here we are. We're making it work yeah. today. Yeah. Well, I will just say that Rob spoke very highly of you. So obviously there were no issues on his end. <laughs> well, that's very kind. So today we're talking with you about sweat. And I know you've done some research on this. We have talked about heat adaptation, best ways to train and, and race in the heat. But we haven't really dived into this whole question of how do we sweat? How much do we sweat? How does it impact your performance? How do you replace those sweat losses? So that's really the focus of today's episode. And just like every topic that we cover, this can get complicated. So I think today's episode, we're probably going to be a little broader and and not quite as deep, but really get an understanding of, of sweat rates. And I hope by the end of this episode, we can have some good suggestions on what you can do to make sure that you're not losing too much fluid or you're at least replacing that fluid as you train and race. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I mean, you mentioned that one thing that that is interesting. Who would have thought something as simple as sweating could get so complicated so quickly? And there are so many nuances. And and I have to say, you know, I've been doing this for close to 30 years now, and um, I'm still learning new things about this. There's so many aspects to it and complications. Um, So yeah, I mean, I'll do my best today, um, but just know that this is always an evolving topic. And what's interesting about the topic for us today is it is about sweat rate. We're going to cover hydration, but hydration itself is a a totally separate topic. And I love the fact that we're really going to discuss sweat in depth because there is so many different nuances there. Yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting too, and at least, you know, you mentioned in my time working for the U.S. Army at USARIAN, the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. And one of the things that we did there was build sweat equations, sweat prediction equations. And, you know, to just hear that and say, well, that's interesting. Why would you want to know that? Why would the Army want to know that? But by being able to predict how much you can sweat, I can predict or I can understand how much fluid you would need for a particular activity. And why is that important for, for the military? It's because water, the second most difficult thing to, to move around in training or in theater. And so you want to be able to understand you know, how much do I need to bring for a particular activity for so many individuals? You know, what's the environment? What's the work intensity? What are they wearing? What might they be carrying? And to be able to have enough fluid, but not have more fluid than you need because now it's more costly. So, and the first thing that's more difficult to move around is actually fuel. So when I think of sweating in particular, it's hard for me to, to divide the, the hydration piece from the sweat piece because they are actually very intricately intertwined. But we can, I obviously, we'll just, given the topic today, just focus on the sweat piece. Um, but I think it's just important and it seems intuitive that this sweat piece is going to have that intimate relationship to how much fluid that you're going to need for an activity. It's interesting that you have experience at the Army. And and when I say experience, it's an understatement. You have a lot of experience. The research that has come out of that facility 
on things like sweat, among other topics, is really interesting because, you know, we think a lot as athletes, as endurance athletes, like our listeners are identifying as, it's a whole different situation. It's a whole different level of seriousness when we are talking about hydration and sweat needs of somebody who is in combat, of somebody who is carrying hundreds of pounds of gear and they're not wearing a mesh singlet. You're up against a a much more difficult task in question. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to recognize that they are athletes in their own way. I mean, a lot of the times, even for some of these sweat prediction equations for the military, the exercise intensities they go to are as high as what you would see for athletes or cyclists or for runners or for other other kind of athletes. But there are other issues that you said. I mean, you mentioned carrying loads. That plays a big role. Uniforms, body armor, wearing a helmet, And then, you know, what kind of environments, if you're at altitude, there's a whole other aspect there. And then other aspects that fall in play as well, because, you know, while individuals will have MREs to eat and these MREs have an appreciable amount of sodium and other electrolytes to replace what's lost in sweat, a lot of these times in training or in theater, these men and women can't eat because they're up-tempo. They don't have time to eat. They're moving too fast, you know, or they're not hungry or they're you know, doing an activity, whether they're in training or they're in combat. And so there's these extra added pieces when you're looking at a military scenario that are a little bit different than for the athletes. And then you can, you know, actually the physiological stress, psychological stress of actually what they're doing, the simple fact that they may not have slept very well, but they still have to carry on doing a task. They still have to maintain a high cognitive function for decision-making. So a lot of ways it's similar and a lot of ways there are some differences. Interesting. Since we have a lot to cover, let's start with basically a 101 of sweat and start with the simplest question, why do we sweat? That is a great question. There are actually two types of sweating. And the sweating that we're talking about today is the sweat that is involved in thermoregulation. And so I'll explain that in a little more depth. But there's also the nervous sweat that you have. And everybody has this experience, like, you know, if you're on a job interview, that kind of sweat, you may not be thermoregulating in that situation, but you may be sweating. And that's a different type of sweat. So you have eccrine sweat and epicrine sweat. The epicrine sweat is more of that nervous sweating, tends to have kind of an odor to it. And so we really want to focus on eccrine sweating that's involved with thermoregulation. And so the basic idea, if you want to think of this through, through evolution and, you know, aren't too many other animals that actually do this. We're leveraging the, the concept that in the biophysics of the, the idea that when you take a fluid and put it on a surface and it evaporates in certain circumstances, it can carry heat away. So for the thermoregulation portion of sweating, what we're really looking at is heat that's gained or generated by somebody doing an activity. So somebody exercising. So obviously people sweat when it's cold out. So that heat is being generated from exercise or you can get it from being in a hot environment or both, right? So you can be generating heat as you exercise and you can be in a hot environment. But either way, we have to maintain a temperature homeostasis. Obviously, you know, Fahrenheit, most people know 98, 97.5, 98, what people typically understand in Fahrenheit as, as the temperature set point, if we want to call it that, that we need to maintain homeostasis. And we can go up a little bit, we'll go down a little bit. And then there's actual physiological adjustments or adaptations that help us reset or establish homeostasis to bring that temperature back down to the set point. So if we look at the scenario where we're gaining heat and when we're exercising, and so the byproducts of exercise involve 
CO2, so you're breathing out CO2, and we all know that. Water, so metabolic water is released when you exercise, and that water goes right back into your body tissues or into circulation. And then heat is the other aspect. And so while you're exercising and generating this heat, that heat is causing heat gain. So you're gaining heat, your core temperature is actually beginning to increase. And you can also be gaining heat from the environment. So your skin temperature will be rising. And these two inputs go into your brain, to your hypothalamus, and give signals that you need to thermoregulate you need to get our body core temperature back to that homeostatic set point, 37C, 97, 98 Fahrenheit. So there are particular adjustments, physiological adjustments that happen. First thing that's going to happen is you're going to need to take the heat and bring it to a place where it can thermoregulate or you can dump that heat. So where you're looking at a scenario, let's say you're cycling or you're running and generating that heat from those muscles that are doing that activity, that heat has to go somewhere. And one of the main places it's going to go is into your, your blood volume. So a portion of your blood, as we know, is made up of water. Water is an incredible heat sink. That means that you can put a lot of heat into water. And everybody knows this because when you're boiling water, you're putting that heat into that water on the pan, causing that temperature to rise. And that's what's happening in your body. You're, you're taking that heat from your exercising muscles, putting into the, the liquid portion of your blood. And now what we need to do is move that heat and bring it out to the periphery of your body. So you'll notice most people become flushed when they exercise. And that's because the blood vessels out at the periphery are beginning to open up. So we have what we call peripheral vasodilation. And lots of times you'll see people, especially in the upper extremity or on their face or their chest or their shoulders, will become very red. That's a reflection of this peripheral vasodilation. The next thing that's going to happen is you're going to sweat. So the sweat glands are going to be initiated and fluid. And that fluid that's coming out of your bloodline again is going to go on the surface of your skin and the heat from your skin is going to cause the evaporation of that sweat. And when the sweat evaporates, it carries heat away from it. So that is how human beings thermoregulate. And it seems like the simple answer is thermoregulation, but then when you explain it all out, you can see there's a lot of complexities and there's a lot of adaptations and adjustments that can happen. And like with most things in physiology, you know, you're doing one thing as an adaptation because you need to thermoregulate, but there are going to be some downstream consequences of thermoregulation. Yeah. These systems are incredibly complex, right? As you're pointing out in here and the thermoregulation side of it is very important. You know what? We're going to lose heat through a few different methods, right? Convective, radiation, depending on the environment, maybe some conductive to a degree, depending on the situation. But the sweating that we're talking about, that evaporative heat loss, I mean, we're talking orders of magnitude above, like 10 times the amount of heat loss compared to some of these other methods that we can exchange that energy, correct? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, the, the other mechanisms by which we can gain or lose heat, and, and, and you've mentioned some of them. You know, so radiation, most of the time people are thinking, you know, you're gaining heat from the radiative load from the sun or the radiation you would get from standing next to like a space heater. But you can also radiate, I'm sure you've stood next to an individual who's radiating heat. You can feel that radiation to a degree. Conduction is another mechanism that you've mentioned. So um, always a good example of that is like sitting on a, a bleacher seat in the fall, you go to a football game, and you're conducting heat from, from your body into that cold seat, or you can gain heat um, the same way. And, and convection is the other way that most of the time heat is lost when we're talking about. A lot of times we're talking about airflow, carrying heat away. But the other way we think of it is 
you know, movement of some type of media. And so water is another great example of that. And that's a different circumstance, but you can talk about swimmers as well. They're going to be losing heat to a, a larger time, up to 25 times more than being in the air, just because of water and the flow of water carrying heat away. But you're correct. Sweating is the predominant way that we are going to thermoregulate. Something that you brought up that's really important to point out is it's not the sweat, it's the evaporation of sweat that causes you to lose the heat. And a lot of people don't understand this. If you're sitting in a gym somewhere and you're sweating and all that sweat's ending up on the floor, it's not doing anything for you. That's 100% correct. So, you know, we call that wasteful sweating. And, you know, I, I can't run anymore, but I've, I've taken up boxing and was in the gym this morning um, in a class. And there's just a puddle around me. And, and I know lots of people have this experience from maybe doing hot yoga or being on a, um, a bike, doing a cycling class or running on a treadmill. And so while that sweat is, you know, some people look at it as a sign of like, I am working hard. Your body's trying to thermoregulate, but it is wasteful. You are actually not thermoregulating. So, you know, dripping sweat is not going to be advantageous to helping you um, lower your body temperature. That's actually particularly relevant to swimmers, because if you're in a, a warm pool, you are sweating. A lot of swimmers don't realize this, but if you're working hard, you often are sweating. That sweating's immediately getting taken away from your body. So there can be issues with thermoregulation when you're in a pool. Yeah, that, I mean, that's another great example. I, and I swam for a bit when I was in college. Um, and there were certain times when the pool temperature was too high. So another great example, now you're conducting heat from the water, right? You are getting hot. You really can't sweat as well because you can't evaporate, but you are still sweating, right? And so you are losing fluid. And I, and I can tell you after some of those workouts, um, you could actually smell the sweat, you know, when you have 20 or 30 guys in a pool doing a hard workout. And that's another, another good example. So if you're generating heat while you're exercising, you could be gaining heat because the pool temperature is very high and still having fluid loss. Though a lot of times it's almost insensible. I can't recall a lot of times when I was like, oh, I'm really thirsty when I'm swimming, but you are losing fluid. And you guys are touching on a really interesting topic that not many people think about, but it's something that I've had to think about in my previous life, right? Working in advanced development for Pearl Izumi, the apparel company, in that if we're talking about evaporating sweat from your skin is removing a lot of heat. But if that moisture is then absorbed into your clothing and it's being evaporated from the outer layer of clothing instead of your skin, you're losing a lot of the efficiency. You're losing a lot of the heat loss that you otherwise would be getting. It's kind of like that puddle on the ground isn't cooling you off. You know, something that's evaporating from layers away from your skin isn't cooling you off nearly as well either. So material choice can really become a, a big deal depending on the environment that you're in. I've definitely noted that in uh, hot, humid environments, a mesh where you're able to have more airflow directly on your skin is significantly more efficient than something that's maybe more of like a solid knit. That is a, that's an excellent point. And if you and you mentioned apparel companies, and this is another huge area where you see a lot of intersection from human physiologists like myself, engineers, individuals who know a lot about biophysics, people who do modeling, mathematical modeling. And so I just happened to be out at the American College of Sports Medicine conference last week doing a presentation and talking to some individuals who work for some large apparel companies. And this is what they're doing. They're, they are delving into this science you know, the technology of the different types of fibers, fibers that might be able to spread the sweat more evenly, understanding where the body actually sweats from, doing sweat mapping and having an idea of where would individuals sweat more from, how would we design clothing 
just as you said, to maximize evaporation from those particular areas. Technology that should have been developed but um, hasn't been given a lot of thought, and that's women's apparel. So how do we design sports bras to be more efficient to allow for sweating? So there's a, this is a huge area. Obviously, the apparel companies all around the world are working on this, and they are increasingly getting more sophisticated. And then the other piece that they're bringing in, too, is marrying that up to algorithms, predictive algorithms, and wearable technology. So ideas, because you mentioned you know, what to wear. And when I was running before, one of the big problems that you would think about is, you know, I'm going to run. I think it's going to be a moderate type of run. Maybe I'm going to bring water. Maybe I won't. But it's like late fall. Maybe it's in the winter. Am I going to wear too much? Because then I'm going to sweat a lot. I can get too hot or I don't want to be cold. And what kind of predictive algorithm could tell me what would be the best thing for me to wear? when I'm out running so I don't generate too much heat or I'm not too encumbered and interfering with my ability to thermoregulate. So very complicated, obviously a lot of commercial aspects to this. They're very important. And for any of your listeners who are very interested in this, especially younger people who are looking at careers, a lot of careers, a lot of interesting intersections, like I said, engineers, mathematics, modeling, computer programming, it's endless. And it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, Dr. Kenovic, you're you're a man after my own heart by by saying all of that. That's a world that I absolutely love and and have lived in for many years. I do want to cap this off though and get back onto our our main outline. But before I do that, if there is any listener who's really interested in these topics, I am going to plug a Canadian researcher named George Havaneth, who does some really, really great work in this area, sweat mapping, has worked with some big companies out there. So there's so much reading, there's so much learning to do in that area. It's definitely available. Actually, George is in the UK. He's at Loughborough University. Oh, he's in the UK. He's Ah. in the UK. Yes, I've been to George's lab. He is an awesome guy. And his lab is probably the premier lab, one of the premier labs in the world doing work just as, as you've mentioned um, in this area. And also looking at a few other areas for thermoregulation that you wouldn't think of things like vehicles. And there's a lot of other types of application to, and for public health as well. Oh, I'm sorry, Canadians. I tried to get a win for you. <laughs> I, I appreciate you uh, trying to give Canada some credit there. It was there nice are of you. some very, very good Canadian researchers. Yep. Glenn Kenny, I can mention many, many of them. So they're certainly well-represented in the field. Appreciate it. So let's switch to the other side of sweat. So we've talked about the fluid part of sweat, but a lot of people focus on the fact that there is electrolyte loss in your sweat as well. So again, let's start with kind of the 101 explanation. What are you and aren't you losing in sweat? So I'm going to use some big terms here. Is it isotonic? Is it hypotonic? Meaning, does it have the same concentration as your blood? Is it less than your blood? Is it more than the blood? Yeah, those are, that's a, an excellent question. And it gets into some ideas of there are actually different types of dehydration. And we can talk a little bit about that. But most of the time, people think that your sweat contains a lot of, particularly people who are thinking sodium, sodium chloride. But when we're thinking about all of the electrolytes that include you know, magnesium, calcium, sodium, chloride, those are being lost. Because remember, we said, where's your sweat coming from? It's coming out of your blood volume. It's coming out of that liquid portion. It's coming out of your plasma. So it represents what is in your plasma. But your sweat is hypotonic relative to your plasma. So that means the constituents that are in there, those electrolytes are in a less concentration than what is in in your actual plasma. So when we talk about sweating, we talk about the state that individuals get in through thermoregulatory sweating. And that there's a reason I'm saying thermoregulatory sweating, because that alludes to a type of dehydration, right? You are becoming 
hypertonic and hypovolemic. So your sweat is hypotonic. So when you're losing fluid and some electrolyte, that actually makes your plasma more concentrated. So your plasma is becoming more hypertonic and you're losing volume. That's hypovolemia. So a lot of times people think, and when I've had students, you know, they've, they've said when I taught EHONH, they were like, well, you know, I've tasted sweat on, on whomever and it tasted very salty to me. So do I need to replace that electrolyte? And a lot, that's a, it's an, a great question as to what do I need to replace? When do I need to replace it? Under what circumstances do I need to replace it? And how do I, how do I know what I need to replace? And those are a lot of areas that are, I think, becoming very big right now with a lot of different types of sensors and wearables, other prediction algorithms that get into this for, particularly for athletes who really want to try to individualize what they're doing, their training, and have a better understanding of what their particular needs are to kind of tailor that for whatever they're going for, whatever their personal goals are. So we can delve into that if that's an area you'd like to go into. Well, certainly one thing I have found interesting, uh, so when I was studying this many years ago in my my graduate program, it was something that was a little revelatory to me that I've really applied to my athletes, which is, as you pointed out, as you're sweating, the blood becomes more concentrated. So everybody is very concerned about replacing those electrolytes. And there's certainly a lot of manufacturers that take advantage of this and create these drink mixes for when you ride that are really high in sodium. But the fact of the matter is in your gut, that whatever you're drinking is trying, it's first going to get transferred into your blood volume and the blood volume is already concentrated. So if you're drinking a concentrated mix, you're not going to actually get that concentration gradient that's going to allow everything to transfer from the gut to the blood. You, in some ways, can actually accentuate the problem. So when you're, you're exercising and you're sweating a lot, it's more important to replace that fluid. And what I was taught in school, and I'm very interested in your response to this, is you should actually, at a, a certain point, be drinking mostly straight water or a not very concentrated mix just to replace a little bit. It's really after exercise that you should be focusing on replacing those electrolytes. But what are your thoughts? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people ask questions of scientists and they, and they give you the answer. It depends. Before we hear Dr. Kenefick's answer, let's check in with another hydration expert, Dr. Stacy Sims, and hear her answer to this question of having too much sodium in the gut and what impact it has. Because sodium is in different compounds. So most people associate sodium with sodium chloride, and they think about you know table salt and that kind of stuff. If you take too much sodium chloride, the chloride ion disassociates in the intestines and changes the membrane potential, allows intestinal cells to open up, releasing endotoxins, and this can contribute to an increase in core temperature rise because it's a toxin, and also contribute to GI distress and reduces the integrity of the contractile mechanism of the intestines. The other aspect of taking in too much sodium is with water, there's sodium. So if you're ingesting too much sodium, then water is going to come to the sodium that's in the digestive tract. So it's a fine balance. And this is where a lot of triathletes and to some extent age group cyclists go awry when they start taking salt tablets. One, they're taking sodium chloride and two, they're taking a high dose of sodium chloride. People are trying to take one to three grams of sodium to match sweat losses and they start doing that, it's way too much. So the upper end that you should take per hour as a heavy sweater would probably be 1,000 milligrams. 
So this is another, it depends. So I'll try to run through a different, a number of different types of scenarios here. So you're correct. I mean, for, for most individuals who are not exercising, I would say, you know, maybe more than an hour a day or even a half an hour, an electrolyte replacement beverage could also be a, some type of fuel during activity probably isn't really necessary given two things for that short duration of exercise. Even if it's like a hit workout that's very intense, where you may actually be working very hard and lose an appreciable amount of sweat, it's not going to be that much in that short period of time. And you are going to have opportunities with food and fluid. And that's where a lot of electrolytes going to come from is food intake to replace those electrolytes. So that's really scenario driven, right? So you don't, it's not absolutely necessary. Some people would say, well, you know, I, I may be doing an activity that's, that's short, but I want to um, increase the amount of carbohydrate I have available because I want to work more intensely. It's going to be a very intense workout. Maybe I'm running a 5K. Maybe I'm an athlete who could run a, a 10K in you know, less than 45 minutes to an hour. So I want to take in carbohydrate to do that because I want to have the fuel. And in those circumstances, it's very difficult to separate out most sports drinks because they contain electrolyte you know, a fuel type of, of replacement and a beverage because you want hydration and then the electrolyte portion. So there is that other circumstance. One of the things that you mentioned that I think it's also important to understand when you're taking in various types of fluids is that the concentrations of what they are are very important. As you said, you can put in concentrations, very, very high glucose. It also contain high concentrations of electrolyte that actually cause fluid to be drawn from the blood, blood volume into the intestinal lumen. And so that's cause osmotic diarrhea. And that does happen sometimes. And so that's something to be concerned about. The other issue too, is when you put taking beverages that are very high concentrations, particularly of glucose, it actually delays gastric emptying. So the fluid is slower to leave your stomach to, and then get into your gut to be absorbed. Some would say that's advantageous because it allows a more efficient uptake of glucose. But when you're actually trying to speed the fuel getting into circulation, that may not be something that you want. So when we look at other circumstances where now things start to become more important, now we're getting into scenarios where exercise is going for much longer durations, longer than an hour, situations where people may not be able to take in food. I remember when I used to, to ride a bike, it was, it was nice to be able to have the opportunity to eat, which is more difficult than when you are running, obviously when you're swimming. But, you know, and especially the other aspect is intensity for individuals who can exercise for relatively higher intensities for longer periods of time. So now you're looking at greater sweat losses, greater appreciable losses. And over time, and it's going to take time, you are going to begin to start to lose some electrolyte. Now you're really looking at scenarios where people who are, are exercising for many, many hours. So, you know, triathlon would be a great example. Some adventure racing. Um, so I've done some of these events with my partner who's an ultra runner and gone out and, you know, run for 24 hours. And there are lots of events like this where individuals may not be exercising for at high intensities, but they are ex exercising for very long durations. Now you're starting to see scenarios where they are starting to accumulate electrolyte loss. And that's a situation where you probably need to start thinking about replacing it. Again, circumstances that allow you to eat, you can do that. Long distance, you know, trail runs, ultra runs, you'll see it. Most of those 
those stops, aid, aid stations will have salty foods, snacks like that, pretzels, peanuts, potato chips, and that helps. The other thing that these you know, higher amounts of sodium and, and beverages do is they actually hope you hang on to it more. That's another reason to have something that's higher. Typically, it's higher than what's in sport drink. And that sodium causes fluid retention. So, you know, you hang on to it longer so you don't urinate it out. You don't make urine from it. So that's another advantage to it. Another, another scenario that we've seen in the military, too, is individuals who will be exercising for, you know, days on end and situations where people may not be acclimatized or acclimated. So when we talk about heat uh, acclimatization, which, you know, as the summer's coming in, people are going to become naturally acclimatized to the heat. But before that happens, you're losing more sodium or more electrolyte in your sweat. And as you become more acclimated, you lose less. So in situations where individuals who are unacclimatized, I'll mention acclimation in a second, that's a situation where particularly, and there's some military scenarios where we would think, well, you know, it's early spring, we're in the south, um, it's starting to get hot. You know, these, these trainees are coming from, you know, northeast or from, from northern climes. They're definitely not acclimatized. Their sweat is not going to have had that adaptation. So they're going to be sweating out a little more electrolytes. So that might be a scenario where we think, okay, maybe we want to supplement or make sure that these individuals are eating so that they're getting this electrolyte in. And if they're not able to eat, then maybe we want to look for a beverage that has a little bit more sodium in it. And there, and as you mentioned, there's a bunch of them out there. I just want to come back a long way around to answer this question, but our artificial adaptation to heat can happen at any time of the year. And so that's acclimation. Um, this can be induced by doing some type of exercise in a hotter environment. Some people have used microclimates, you know, dress dress in, in heavier clothing and exercise for a period of time, typically not at higher intensities, just enough to raise the core temperature for a period of time to induce these types of adaptations like I've just mentioned for sweating. There are other adaptations as well, cardiovascular adaptations and adaptations to your blood volume. And so that's a whole other topic that um, I think you've mentioned it, that you know it's important for athletes when they're going into an event and who are thinking about, oh boy, I may be coming from a situation where I'm training in the Northeast, but I'm going to be competing in a hot environment. I know I'm not climatized to heat yet. And these circumstances of sweating, what I'm losing in my sweating might play a role in my performance. And so maybe I want to start thinking about doing some type of acclimation type program. There's lots of them out there. Um, there's a fair amount of research in this area too, in order to get ready for that. So I think you've kind of led to the, the next place we want to talk about, which is first going into some general recommendations and you've just given a whole bunch. And then I, I think we're going to finish out talking about individual variants and individual needs. But are there general recommendations that, that you have for athletes in terms of fluid replacement based on sweat loss? And I'm thinking in particular, you recently just published a study where you were saying to prevent dehydration, you generally need to replace about 37 to 54% of your, your sweat rate. But I found really interesting is, and this was in runners, you pointed out that under an hour of activity, you, you might not need to replace anything at all. Yeah. And that, and that gets back into that situation that I was describing earlier of, you know, it depends. So one of the ideas when we start talking about sweating and that sweating relationship to fluid loss and dehydration is its impact on performance. And if we have to draw a line in the sand, and there's 
you know, people who don't agree with us, and that's and that's fine. But we just have to draw a line in the sand and look into the literature. When we talk about a two percent loss, two percent dehydration, and that's relative to to your body weight. So if you were to lose two percent of your body weight through sweat, just sweating, so measure weigh yourself and then exercise for an hour, weigh yourself again. If you haven't taken anything, any fluid or food during that time, you can just do the math and you can calculate what your, your sweat rate was in that hour. How much did you lose? You know, did I lose, you know, half a liter or a liter and whatever that is. And so that, that can give an, an, an idea to athletes to say, I, I understand what my sweat rate is. That sweat rate can change. I mentioned acclimatization. As I become acclimatized or acclimated, I actually will probably, I will sweat more. My sweat will become more hypotonic. I'll conserve more of the sodium, but I'll lose more sweat. I'm more able, I'll sweat earlier in activity. I'll sweat more profusely. So my water, my fluid needs are going to be greater. So one of the things that I would say, my colleague, Sam Trevant, who writes quite often with me, one of the things that we would say for individuals who are serious about performance and they need to understand this idea of when they're going to be approaching this 2% loss, because that's where performance is going to start to become altered. And if you can maintain your fluid balance such that you're not approaching that 2%, then you should be okay, at least as far as performance goes. And you know, there, it, I've mentioned this before, there are downstream effects to becoming dehydrated, to sweating. You know, as your blood volume becomes less, and you become hypovolemic, there are cardiovascular adaptations that happen as well. And some of those, like an increased heart rate, can also play a role on performance. It also plays a role on perception, the ratings of perceived exertion. How hard do I feel I'm working? So all of these things should be taken into account. Activities, like you've mentioned, for an hour, you probably won't approach 2% loss because the duration just isn't long enough. And for most individuals, it's just not intense enough for you to generate that much heat where you lose 2% in that period of time. It could be possible for very, very large individuals who are, you know, I don't want to say this and say, well, geez, you know, people who are linemen are playing football in the South and, you know, in August wearing all that equipment, you know, those individuals might be able to do that. For the most part, for any, any activities, it's possible you wouldn't need to drink at all during an, an event of an hour or less because you won't approach 2% loss for, for the most part. When you are going to do activities or you're going to compete and you are going to approach that 2% loss or you've calculated, you figured out how much do I sweat, I believe it's important for individuals to have a plan. How am I going to think about fluid intake to attenuate my losses such that I don't cross that 2% line? So an, an example for myself in 2012, I was running quite a bit and I wanted one of my goals was to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And I sweat a lot and I knew my sweat rate at the time. And I knew that for my circumstance, I had failed in a number of, of longer runs, half marathons, approaching marathon distances because I was becoming too dehydrated. I couldn't drink enough to offset how much I was sweating. I was approaching that 2%, going over that 2% line not having enough fluid and that affected my performance such that I couldn't qualify. So what I, I needed to do was to determine circumstances under which I wouldn't sweat so much. And that would have, have to be a cooler environment. So I wound up finding a race in December and, and going to that race because it was so cool. I wouldn't have to thermoregulate as much. I wouldn't lose as much fluid. 
and still having a plan to drink in order to attenuate the fluid losses so my performance would be less affected. So I, I would say that those circumstances, when you're looking at you know, longer activities, now we're talking endurance activities, it could be cycling, it could be running, it could be adventure racing, any of these types of activities that are going on for those longer periods of time, you do need to start thinking about, okay, how much fluid could I particularly lose in this event if I know my sweat rate? How much do I really need to be thinking that I'm taking in? Those circumstances too, it's important to have fluid that is not hypotonic. So fluid that has an electrolyte in it. The other thing we haven't really mentioned is drinking in too much fluid and the dangers of hyponatremia. So situations where people lose an appreciable amount of sodium, we see this a lot in longer, longer duration events, there's training scenarios in the military, and then people drink back just water. There's, that's why we call it hypotonic fluid intake. And that actually dilutes your sodium in your plasma. And that can have serious detrimental effects to your nervous system. It can cause seizures. It can cause death. And so that's very, very serious. So there's another idea. You know, you need to understand if you're in these events and you are losing sodium because it's, you know, it's going on for so long. Again, you need to be planning, okay, what should I be drinking or what should I be eating so that I, I'm not putting myself at risk for hyponatremia by drinking just plain water and putting myself at risk. Dr. Katafik just explained the impact of losing fluid through sweat. But before we continue that conversation, let's hear from another exercise physiologist, Jared Berg, and his thoughts on how much fluid and sodium we can afford to lose. So when you're training or racing, should you be fueling or drinking to replace your sweat and electrolyte losses? Is, is that the goal? that you should be seeking when you when you train and race? Yeah, I totally think that's that's the, the safest, the healthiest, and the best performance um, maintaining potential is to make sure that you're you're, you're um, keeping your your body well well hydrated to replace the fluid you lost, replace the electrolytes that you are losing and there's lots of lots of reasons that we can dive in for that, but um, you know, simply simply Put is um, when we start to lose, you know, start to lose some of that that fluid. We're losing that our plasma volume, and so basically our blood volume is starting to decrease. And our blood is where we really um, are going to. That's where we transport that oxygen to to our body. And that oxygen is so important in, in the aerobic metabolism and our basically our aerobic ability, our ability to, to produce ATPs or produce energy. And so if we're actually reducing our aerobic capacity if we are not replacing our, our fluids. We have less, less blood moving around. And then the electrolytes are, are certainly important. They, they you know, are functioning in very um, the fiber of muscle contraction. You know, it's, it's those um, electrolytes that are allowing the, the actual uh, muscle fiber, the, the nerves to communicate with the actual muscle fibers that allow... Uh, sort of those active and myosin crossfages interact with each other and form the actual mechanical action of, of a muscle contraction that we, so that's really important to keep those electrolytes up there. And if we don't, they can start to have some sort of muscle contracting misfires, which can really make it uh, trying to produce power uncomfortable or even debilitating. So how plastic do you think the body is? Meaning how much fluid can you lose? How much electrolytes, particularly sodium, can you lose and still perform at your best. Oh gosh, so let's go, I'll go with the fluids first. That's mostly what I understand the most is 
you know, and when you go into all the, uh, the peer-reviewed journal articles, you're going to see that when you start to approach 3% of fluid loss, you're going to start to see a significant decline in, in performance. Okay. And so you're basically, that's representing a, a decline in, in, in your fluid that's impacting your, like your ability to transport oxygen throughout your body. And you're also not going to be as effective at cooling yourself as you start to get beyond that also. Right. As far as electrolytes, I feel like we all, there's a little bit more um, variability among, among athletes where some people can lose more, more sodium than others and still, um, and not experience the, um, the negative effects like, like cramping, um, you know, basically muscle misfiring where, um, I think that's a little bit more variable, but you know, as soon as we start to sort of upset that balance, our, our body is going to, going to compensate. And unfortunately it can compensate by, uh, by, you know, causing those cramps resulting in cramps. Hi, Coach Connor here. We just released the newest module from the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, which focuses on managing athletes and service providers. Success in coaching is all about how we support our athletes. When athletes feel supported, everyone wins. Contact our head coach, Ryan Kohler, to learn more about how Fast Talk Labs can extend your coaching business with new collaborative athlete services like sports nutrition, testing, data analysis, and more. Email Ryan at coaches at fasttalklabs.com. Dr. Kenefick, I mean, just listening to you, you raise so many incredible points that it's it's hard to focus on one and ask a question. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do this. You mentioned two percent as being a threshold where performance begins to degrade. I know for myself, I love to do really big long bike rides. And in all honesty, I probably can't take enough water with me to hold to a 2% loss. So I know I'm going to lose some performance. But what I'm wondering is, based on your research with the Army or, or someone else's, is there a line where it, it starts to become dangerous that you really don't want to go past, say, 5%, uh, 10%? You know, wh- where do we need to be to stay safe? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I just want to come back to the 2% thing real quick. 2% is sort of a rule of thumb, but, you know, individuals would say, well, you know, I could be at 2%, my performance isn't degraded. When I'm in a cooler environment, we've done some of that work and that, and that's true. So, you know, a lot of it can be environment driven as well. You know, circumstances where you're cooler, you can stand a little bit greater degree of dehydration or percent loss than you can in hotter environments. So I just want to put that caveat in. When we talk about, you know, there's obviously this relationship is, you know, the, the greater the fluid loss, the greater the percent loss, the greater the decrement on performance, and the greater the degree of the cardiovascular adjustments that have to be brought into play. And you know, you can also see that the changes in ratings of perceived exertion just makes the work feel harder. And you're gauging that off your heart rate and, and other aspects. The idea of when does this become dangerous is is an interesting one. You know, so research in and of itself, when I worked for the army, um, most institutions will have a limit as far as what you can go to. Typically, we would go to about 4%, sometimes 5% body weight loss. After that, it wasn't really considered ethical. But we do know from research and just from practice, individuals who, who practice weight loss for weight sports, combat sports, will regularly lose large amounts of fluid and can sustain very large percent changes over time. And you know, sometimes, and, and, you know, when I've, I've done some work with 
some of those individuals, you know, who were working fighting with the UFC. You know, a lot of times when you talk to them when they did these very large losses of, you know, five, six, eight, ten percent over. Now that's a circumstance of over typically a number of days, but it could be over a day that they really felt that their performance was degraded. They're allowed to try to get that fluid back, you know, before the event, but it's very, very difficult to do so. So you mentioned, you know, your your aspect of I I can't take that much water with me. And how can you adjust for that? And you 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 raise a great point. And that's this idea of, you know, especially when you're if you're running, you can only take so much water. If you're cycling, you can only take so so much water. Circumstances where you may not be able to get water. So even if you are on a bike ride, you could stop. It depends on where you are. And so in those circumstances, you know, that you can only do the best you can do, you can take water as much as you can carry. You can start to plan out how much do I need to drink? When can I drink it to try to stave off this level? But you're correct. A lot of people are going to finish an event, but I just want to bring that point up. But you may try to attenuate getting to this 2% line. You're not going to be able to do it, but you know, you'll probably get over that maybe to 3%, maybe greater towards the latter half or maybe towards the very end of the event. So it doesn't really impact your performance for the most part during all of the other parts of the event. Maybe just that's the last portion. But you know, you raise a, a difficult question for athletes is, you know, how can I replace all of that fluid? And is that a realistic expectation um, for longer rides or runs um, when water isn't available? And you're correct. Those circumstances aren't going to allow it. And you can only do the best you can do in trying to replace fluid during those events. But to the other question, you know, there are some classic studies that were done, particularly right around World War II. Um, Man in the Desert is a book by Edward Adolph, who's considered one of the fathers of thermoregulatory science and environmental physiology. And he did a lot of this work well before there were IRBs, did a lot of it out in the Mojave Desert. Um, and then other studies that were done down in Florida, where individuals were put into life rafts and um, looked at dehydration by not giving them fluid. And people could last a number of days and achieve very, very large losses before it became dangerous. And so well, it's difficult to predict the actual change or the percent loss. We typically at those circumstances, I mentioned plasma osmolality, how concentrated does your blood get? When we're now we're starting to look into circumstances where your plasma osmolality becomes so high that it begins to actually cause death. So, you know, typically in athletics, you may see circumstances where people lose four or five, six percent. They're okay. They'll replace it. Difficult to say how much their performance has been changed, although it probably will be. Another aspect that I want to bring up too is that there is a, another loss that's happening when you're exercising this long. And that's the loss of muscle glycogen. So you are actually breaking down glycogen to use, you know, breaking it down into glucose, and that actually changes your body weight. So my colleague and I, I mentioned Dr. Sharant, have written a paper to compensate for that, to take it into a, a calculation where you can actually use predictive calculations to say, well, if I'm exercising for two hours and I'm measuring my body weight, how much of that was actually fluid and how much of that is actually the muscle glycogen that I that I combusted, that I used for the activity. There's another important point. Another important point that's been left off, particularly in the early literature, where that calculation wasn't taken into account, where individuals may have exercised for very long periods of time and they report body weight changes. But the reality is, if you had corrected 
you know, the body weight changes are still pretty big, but they aren't quite as big given the fact that this correction wasn't taken into account. I love that you bring that up because I'm nerdier than the average bear and I may or may not have created my own spreadsheet that calculates out, you know, all of these concentrations, needs and everything else for me as an individual. And I definitely have utilized your equations into my calculations. Uh, so I, I love that. Did you include your honey needs? I did. I'm, I'm actually nerdier than the average Pooh Bear uh, for those who there listen to the show regularly. <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. But that sheet, that one going, Rob. <laughs> that sheet, I want to bring up real quick because it really highlighted something for me, and that's the impact that the length of an event can have. I know for myself, I'm a fairly heavy sweater, uh, a little above average, and I have about average sort of sodium concentration. But that still means I sweat out a lot of sodium, right? Because I'm sweating out a lot of average sodium amount. What's interesting for me is that if I go like one bottle in an hour of plain water, my sodium concentration will actually stay pretty good for hours and hours. But I end up in a situation where I surpass that two to 3% loss really within about two hours, right? And so if I'm going to be riding for longer than that and I want to stay within a good percent body loss, if I'm going to go out for six hours, then I need to be at two bottles an hour, 40 ounces of water an hour. And that's where I end up in a situation or where riders would end up in a situation that they would become hyponatremic after time. And, you know, and it's those situations perhaps that we need that extra electrolyte supplementation. And, and it's very much the length of the event that is going to cause the shift in need, in my opinion and my experience. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea of hyponatremia is you're over drinking, you know, so you could. And you hear about there's a radio contest a few a number of years ago now, or I think they called the the radio contest was hold your wee for a wee, like one of those little wee devices, and people were drinking copious amounts of water, and they are actually diluting their their plasma sodium just by sitting there drinking fluid. So the main idea is just drinking too much hypotonic fluid, such as water. But now you're introducing this other concept of electrolyte loss in addition to drinking hypotonic fluid. And the simple fact that you're losing more electrolyte and the more, the longer you go, the more you lose. And, and then I would say in those circumstances, you know, sport drinks, the sodium content, the electrolyte content is, is going to be for most, I don't want to say all sport drinks, but for most commercial sport drinks, for those circumstances, you know, the fuel is fine. The electrolytes probably going to be too low. There are other types of products that have higher electrolytes. Some people would say, look to an oral rehydration solution. Um, that might be too high. Those are typically for another type of dehydration where the dehydration is isotonic. You have large fluid losses and electrolyte losses. So they have very large electrolyte concentrations, about you know, 60 to 62 milliequivalents of sodium, um, because that's what's being lost from vomiting or diarrhea. But so you really do need to look for something that has a higher electrolyte content. And I, and I can only say, and you know, my question for you is, are you taking food with you? Because food, food is another great way to get an electrolyte you know, various things you can take. I, when I remember when I rode, we'd be passed me to have a, a sandwich, turkey sandwich in my jersey in the back and pull that out. So far, we've talked about general fluid and sodium needs. But over the rest of this episode, we're going to show just how individual it really is. However, before we dive into that conversation, let's hear from Alex Howes and how he's personalized his sodium intake. So I've had my sweat analyzed a few times and it, it varies so much. And I think a lot of people 
kind of take that for granted. They think, oh, I'm a heavy salter or oh, I, I sweat too much or I don't sweat enough or whatever. It changes a lot with the seasons with, you know, relatively minor heat adaptation. Um, you know, we start to hold on to our salt quite a bit better than, you know, that first couple of times we get shocked in the heat. And so being aware of how much that changes definitely changes how I look at, you know, what I need to drink and how much I need to drink throughout the season. So what in particular do you look for to, to change and what do you change about what you drink? So in the winter, I know that just because I have limited access to heat, if that makes any sense. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time riding outside in the cold. When I do do a, a hard session on the trainer or something like that, I know I need to consume quite a bit more sodium with the, whatever fluid I'm taking in versus in the summer, I can dilute it a little bit because I know that the amount of sodium coming out of my sweat is quite a bit less. You know, I do think that listeners do need to be taking in all of those different sources. I think that what we're struggling with right now is the generalized recommendations, right? Because we know that people are highly individual. How much they sweat is individual, how much sodium they need is individual, maybe even how much their tolerance is to being dehydrated is individual. I would love for us to dig into how do we actually take this to more of an individualized recommendation for people so that we can take it out of some general terms? Yeah, and I before you go there, this was probably in, in the reading I did, particularly one of your studies, was really surprised by was the extent to which there is individual variability. So for example, in one of your studies, you mentioned that the individual variance in terms of their daily fluid needs was huge, anywhere from two liters per day up to eight liters per day. But also uh, we, we read this uh, review by Dr. Lindsay Baker that said that even within a particular individual, their day-to-day -day variability in terms of their sweat rate can vary 22% and their sodium loss can vary 17%. So it seems like that makes it very hard to make any sort of recommendations. Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. And you know, I can just give a, a shout out to my colleague, Lindsay Baker. She's, a, she's a, an excellent scientist working at Gatorade Sports Science Institute. I encourage people to read her work, um, among others. You're right. I mean, the, the, the circumstances that we're, we talk about what contributes to variability, one thing that contributes to variability is actually the variability in what you're doing the measurement with. And so that's something that needs to be taken into account. So and a lot of times you're seeing now, there's a lot of different tools coming out to measure things like sweat electrolytes and you know, prediction algorithms. And they all have variability in them. And I would, I would just, um, I'm not going to endorse any products, um, but I would just tell listeners to do their research, do their own research. And to think about, you know, how well does something actually predict or how well does something actually measure something? Because there's going to be variability in that measure. Um, and some things are maybe better than others. And some variability is just going to be inherent and can't get around it. So that's, that's one part. The other part too is, you know, other contributors to variation for an individual. That could be the time of day. Other aspects that can play a role is how hydrated you are to start. Maybe I'm a little dehydrated. That can affect my sweat rate. You know, how acclimatized I am or acclimated. I'm just trying to think of other aspects, you know, the environment that I'm, I'm measuring something in, my exercise intensity, you know, so if I'm, if I was going to predict for myself how much I might need a, to take in fluid for a 10K, I really need to understand the exercise intensity, the environment that I'm doing that in. 
because depending on the environment and depending on how fast or slow I try to run this event or cycle or whatever, my sweat rate is going to be different. And then how I'm going to use that information is going to be different. I mentioned another aspect is that is how much electrolyte do I use? Climatization, acclimation plays a role there. But some individuals we talk about as being either heavy sweaters, people who sweat a lot, or people who are salty sweaters, people who lose a lot of salt, a lot of sodium um, and electrolyte in their sweat. And do they need to have more electrolyte because they lose more? And so those are other considerations that people should understand when they're trying to, especially serious people, you know, I like to think of this idea and I think I've written a paper about it, you know, performance, when you enter a race, not everybody's going to win, but the important aspect is, you know, if you are concerned about your performance and you are serious about it, no matter if it's like, I'm going to run a a three-hour marathon or a six-hour marathon, if that's what my goal is, and I'm serious about it, then I really want to think about all the aspects that I can take into account and create an an individual plan for me so that I can be successful and to achieve whatever goal that is. And that would be an understanding of how much am I sweating and maybe an understanding of what is in my sweat when I lose that so I can have an idea of what I should try to be thinking about replacing during the activity. So what I found really interesting, the Dr. Baker review I mean, she just went through all the issues with the individual variability, with the measurement, as you pointed out. And she really concluded her study by saying, you can't really state here is an, uh, one particular individual's sweat rate. All you can do is classify them as low, moderate, or heavy sweater. Mm-hmm. But then in one of your papers, this made a, a ton of sense to me. You pointed out that if you just have athletes drink ad libitum, so basically drink when they think they should drink, over 50% are going to end up dehydrating. They're going to underhydrate. So it's really important for them to understand their sweat rates and make sure that they're replacing at least 50% of that, those sweat losses. So when it's so individual that you can really only generally classify somebody as saying, well, you're, you're a low sweater or a heavy sweater, but you need that information to make sure you're properly replacing how, where's the balance in this? How do you take something that's so variable? and come up with good numbers for you as an athlete? Yeah, a a good question and a a challenge. You know, I'll I'll touch base on on which I don't think is, personally think needs to be a controversial topic, but has become a controversial topic. And the idea of drinking to thirst is that, is that sufficient hydration to keep you at this 2%? And there's a a number of papers out there, pro and con. And I try to take a middle ground there where I go back to saying, look, you know, if we try to draw that line in the sand, the same 2%, there may be events where you could drink thirst, you'd be fine because you're not going to have an appreciable amount of sweat loss. You're not going to get there. So events of you know 45 minutes or less or an hour or less. But where I think it's important, as you mentioned, you know, when it gets to be longer and you start to get to these larger losses, you should start to be thinking about how do I do that? And, and that begs the question of, well, there's so much variability. How am I ever going to figure these things out? And so, and so my recommendation, and I've given this recommendation to others, um, and this isn't a one-off, you know, one of my mentors, Dr. Joan Finn would say, you know, Robert, your, your body's your laboratory. And I, I still like to think that. And I, I like to encourage athletes to think of themselves in the same way, your body's your laboratory. And you, should, you are going to have to be thinking this through and doing a few experiments. If you know anything about a scientist, it isn't, you know, just one experiment is a series of experiments. 
in trying to take these things into to account, like I just mentioned. So let's say you wanted to determine what your sweat rate was. You can do that by simple math. And there's a number of papers out there, but it's as simple as weighing yourself, doing an activity for a period of time. Typically an hour is good because we express sweat rates in liters per hour. And you know, you you weigh yourself. If you stay in metric, it's you know, kilograms converts to liters, it just makes life easier. Um, you run for an hour. If you take in any fluid, you subtract that out of your weights. Um, or if you eat anything, but if you don't eat, if you want to run for half an hour, you can just do the math and um, calculate that. Just double it for an hour, and then actually calculate out. Okay, I just went for a run and I lost a liter, so my sweat rate is a liter for an hour, or it's two liters an hour, or whatever it is for you, or it's five hundred mils. So you do that, and maybe you did that once a week in a certain type of environment and certain intensity. But then you say, well, look, I'm going to do a, a training run today or a training cycle, it's going to be at a particular exercise intensity, however you're quantifying that heart rate. You know, you've got some device built into your bike, you know, your pacing watch, whatever it is. And you're going to try to stay around race pace and you do your sweat rate then. So that might give you a better idea of what you might expect in that circumstance. Maybe you want to do that on a hot day because now you want to have an idea of like, what's it like when I run at race pace on a hot day? And how does that affect my sweat rate? So now I have a better idea of what I'm going to need to do on the day of. And the other piece too, and it gets more complicated and and Lindsay's work would point that out. You know, when we're trying to get an idea of how much electrolyte is in your sweat, there are those devices that can do that. That will give you a a kind of a ballpark and you can use that for yourself to figure out if I know the concentration of, let's say sodium that I've lost in my sweat and I can do the math of how much sweat that I've lost, I can figure out how much sodium I've lost. And then maybe I want to try to replace that um, and that's going to be probably more of a ballpark, but that's probably okay. You'll probably be okay for that because the circumstances under which you're doing these experiments, we would call them a field experiments. There's a lot of variability. You're really trying to get ballparks versus what we can do in a lab, which can be much more precise. We have indwelling catheters and in people are taking blood and we're actually met, taking their sweat and putting in into uh, electrolyte analyzers. And, you know, we have a very good idea of what the exercise intensities are. That's a different circumstance. People can certainly go to, to those lengths to try to figure that out if they can have the availability or there's a lab that will do that work or if they want to be a subject in a research experiment and learn all this. Um, but the other way to do it is to actually look at all the circumstances that I've just mentioned. And again, your body's your laboratory. Do, do those experiments and start to try to figure these things out for yourself. That's that's the best way to to address this this concept of variability. And you know, the other idea too is that's going to change when your fitness changes. That's going to change with the seasons. If that can change, as I said, with environment. So, you know, if if, if somebody, you know, it sounds like Rob's pretty much into this. You probably have already done this. You know, start keeping spreadsheets. Start recording some of this information for yourself. I don't think I'd be crazy about it. You can start to get some ideas about what you need when you need it and start to use that information to start to make plans for yourself. Does that make sense? It does. And if I can kind of summarize this for some listeners, I I think that the take-home message here is don't worry about suffering from analysis paralysis, right? Just just start recording some data because that's going to be the most important thing. You can have one laboratory session. I would question the validity of that. I would almost rather have a hundred field sessions that may be a little bit less accurate, right? Because it's the volume of the data across all of those different conditions, different environments, different intensities. And if you are going to keep a journal for yourself, you ought to be recording that pre and post weight, record what you're consuming uh, during the uh, event, 
also record the conditions. Was it sunny? Was it 70 degrees? Was it humid? How hard were you going? Maybe even what you're wearing, but you can begin to create this notebook. And ultimately what you're looking for out of that is trends, right? Because we're never going to consume exactly 1.1 liters per hour. It just doesn't work that way. And so I think that these ballparks that you're talking about, that's a really important concept for people to remember. Even though we're talking about the variability, that doesn't mean it's discounting or discrediting the data being collected. No, that, that's, that's an excellent point. And I would agree with everything you've just said. Testing to determine our sweat and sodium losses can be tricky. Let's hear from Dr. Stephen Chung, a top expert on hot and cold weather extremes, about whether there's a value to testing. I think there is room for it. And if you use it properly, I think it's like any test. If you just use it to get a gee whiz number, then nobody is has benefited. But it can be useful for individuals to get an idea of the electrolyte content that they should be using. And uh, because while most of us get the sufficient amount of electrolytes just through our daily diet, if you are exercising for a long period of time in very hot conditions, you are going to be sweating a lot. And if you are a very salty sweater, so if your sweat has a lot of electrolytes in it, there does come a point where you can be critically limited and you can get into trouble from losing too much electrolyte at once. So it is worth it, especially if you think you are one of those people and to get your electrolyte tested in your sweat and then see if you do need to take in more sodium than, than normal. So yeah, I think it, it is useful for a limited range of people. I think for many of us, we're probably not in that extreme salty sweater category, but I think there is a significant percentage who are, and those would be the people that would really benefit to confirm that, yes, I do need more salt and to supplement with more salt in my drinks as I'm exercising. The thing I found really surprising getting ready for this episode, which you're hinting at here, was in Dr. Baker's review, which is really a review on the different methods of measuring sweat loss and electrolyte loss. And she went through all the, the different methods that are used in the lab. So these are pretty sophisticated methods. And it was just page after page of here are all the issues. Like when you collect the sample, the sample can dehydrate. So how do you store it? How long can you store it? And it was just page after page of these are the issues that actually make it really difficult even in the lab to measure this. And then ultimately, at one point in the review, she says, really, the most effective method is surprisingly taking your weight, your, your naked weight before and after. Just be careful, as you said, to account for food or water that you drink or if you go to the bathroom and, and you should really do it naked. But otherwise, that, that actually really is your most effective method. Yeah, I mean, given the circumstances most people are in and the availability of what they have at hand, that is that is the best way of doing it. And when we do, all of our research studies have been used when we're looking, calculating out levels of dehydration. It's all, it's all uses body weight. And so most people, they may not have scales, you know, quite to the level of accuracy, but you don't need to have that, you know, a simple, simple scale. You know, if you have a, most athletes are probably going to have a dumbbell around. So, you know, just throw that on there before, if, you know, it's a five pound dumbbell, throw it on there. It always measures five pounds. You have a reasonable idea that your scale is doing okay. And then you can make those measurements. And yeah, and then, you know, the other piece too, 
as was said before, you know, you can only do the best that you can do. Um, and I agree, you know, try to collect some information on yourself. You learn, you learn quite a bit about yourself. And the reason I like physiology is I like, I like to think about adaptations and um, the simple fact that, you know, we adapt, adapt to training, we adapt to environment, and we can adapt to pathologies as well. So, you know, we're always trying to maintain some kind of homeostasis um, and the adaptations a be part of that. And what is exciting, that's always been exciting for me when you do that for yourself, when you start tracking things over you know, days and then a few weeks and even months, you can start to see these adaptations happening for yourself. And it's pretty exciting to see when you're looking at data, particularly when it's your own data, and seeing you know, these physiological concepts that you've read about, maybe you've heard about in a podcast or talked about with friends or in a magazine, and then actually see it happen for you and you can explain it. And I've always found, at least for myself personally, that it is so cool to be able to see that. And when I've been able to work with people and point that out, you know, it's something they've found exciting too, because the app, when you talk about these ideas, acclimatization or these other types of adaptations like heart rate or even for sweating, you know, they're very, very abstract. But when you are actually experiencing it for yourself, seeing it happen, it's really exciting. And then you kind of, you own it, right? You own it. And now you have information, you're armed with information that you can use to help train yourself and to help prepare yourself again. You know, you don't have to be preparing to run a three-hour marathon. You know, it's, it's whatever performance goals that you set, however you want to put yourself in the best situation to achieve those goals, you should try to do that. Um, and take advantage of some very simple things that you can do, like like weighing yourself. I just want to point out that podcasts are the only place that you can get information. Um, you should discount everything you read in magazines <laughs> or websites. Only listen to podcasts, only get your information right here on Fast Talk Labs. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? So I just really have one last question for you, which is there are companies that are popping up that are claiming they can take a, a sample from you and determine your optimal drink mix. So whether you should have more electrolyte, less electrolyte. Considering all these discussions we've had about measurement issues and variability, are we there yet? Can we legitimately do that? It's a good question. You know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to disparage any of these devices. There's many, many of them out there, lots of different services. I, I can't keep track of them all. And I don't try to anymore. And I'm sure some are better than others. Some some have better science. Some are doing a better job at, with their analyzers or how they're analyzing things and what information you're getting. I, I guess the only thing I can say is, you know, and we kind of alluded to before, when you're doing this, you, it's a snapshot of that circumstance of what you're doing at that time and everything that's going on in you at that moment. It's a snapshot in time. And so you're getting information about that snapshot. And how well that snapshot represents the totality of what you're going to be doing, you know, could be a question. And so, you know, as, as we said before, you, you probably, if you really want to have a better idea, you probably need to get more snapshots to try to totally represent the totality of what's going on. But, you know, if it's, if you want to have that snapshot and that's valuable to you, and that's kind of almost, so you're saying like, Hey, I would, I like this service. I've, I've done some research. I understand what they're doing. Um, I've asked good questions about it before I, I, I plunked my, my dollar bills down on the table or my credit card into the website. I want to take a shot at this and I want to get a benchmark by this and get some ideas. And maybe I just want a benchmark for, for which I can then say, all right, this is an objective benchmark and now I'm going to need to do it myself or I'm going to do some training and then maybe at some other part point, I'll, I'll get another benchmark and see how that works. And that's That could be another way of, of looking at these. I would say, yes, I mean, 
the technology, all technologies have limitations. Are they going to get better? Undoubtedly. You know, the, the interest in this, the wearable market, the technologies, the, the things that I've seen, the simple fact that many, many governments, the armies does this. I think it's only going to get better. So I wouldn't shy away from it. I just would urge caution to understand exactly what's being done, how it's being done, and understand again, just a snapshot. And, you know, I wouldn't, I would just look at the circumstances under which you're doing it and be thinking about how applicable it's going to be to every circumstance you're going to be in. For many of us in North America, the road racing season is winding down. You can test your end-of-season fitness with Fast Talk Labs. Just schedule an inside advanced test with us. Your inside test results will reveal your VO2 max, up-to-date training zones, anaerobic threshold, carb max, fat max, VLA max. Then it'll suggest a path forward for better training and fitness. Learn more at FastTalkLabs.com. Trevor, Dr. Kenefick, you know, again, uh, so many great topics in here. For me, I'm always looking for the simple and the actionable. If you guys were going to break down and, and, and Trevor, we can start with you. Dr. Kenefick will give you the last word. If you can break this down, what are the take-homes? What are the takeaways from today's episode? That's a tough one for me because I think one of the messages here is we have only skimmed the surface. I'm looking at all my notes and, and every topic area that we got to we probably only covered about a quarter of what I had written down. So there is a lot to this. There's a lot of really interesting research, a a lot of really good, useful information on hydration and electrolyte loss and sweat loss that we haven't even touched on yet. I know that's not much of a take home. So I guess my take home is probably stealing the one that that everybody else is going to want to use. So I'll, I'll just start it, which is, we're all individuals. We vary between us. So I'm going to be different from Rob, who's going to be different from Dr. Kenefick. But we also vary day to day and whether you're heat acclimated or not and a whole bunch of other factors. So I think, unfortunately, there's no miracle one answer to this. It's exactly what you guys have been saying, which is get to know yourself, keep those records and start finding what works for you. And with that, Rob, take it from there. Yeah, Trevor, um, my take home is that I hope that listeners heard a few things today that made that say, huh, that's really interesting. I want to know more about this. And the thing I love about this sweat rate topic is that you can know more about it. Unlike uh, testing your VO2 max or your economy or your even blood lactate, all of those require kind of some pretty special equipment. This is data that you can collect on yourself, at at least in terms of the volume side of things, maybe not the sodium or the concentration side, but this is a, a large volume of data that you can collect yourself. And I encourage everyone to start that journal. You can just start a little spreadsheet on your phone if you want, and then you always have that with you. But gather that data. It's going to give you some really incredible insights that will help you understand both yourself and the concepts that we're talking about. Dr. Kenefick? I mean, I can only echo that. I 100% agree and can just, you know, go back to what my mentor said, you know, your body's your laboratory. It's, you know, it's, it's important to know some of these things about yourself, especially when you have goals. And that's one of the things I, I just really want to echo. You know, a lot of people have very different goals and, you know, it's, it's important to try to achieve goals because it, they mean so much to people, whatever they are. And, you know, if you're working with athletes or working with other people, to try to understand what those are and then try to figure out, okay, what's, what's the, what, how can we leverage everything, 
all of our knowledge to be able to help people achieve what they want to achieve and whatever that's going to be. And so this is one way to do that, you know, understanding some of these aspects. And again, you don't have to get crazy about it. You can, you know, you can maybe do this once a week or once a month, but to start to build that database, start to build, get some benchmarks and baselines to start to understand some things, do a little reading. I mean, honestly, I know, as we said, the podcast is one of the the easier ways to get information, but there are other ways, lots of excellent resources. And then for the diehards, you know, you can delve right into the scientific literature, you know, hundreds and hundreds of papers, you know, PubMed's a great way to to find a lot of these resources. And so I would encourage people to to do that. Um, And the last thing I can say, you're you're hundred percent right. I, I taught at the University of New Hampshire for about 12 years, you know, everything we talked about, just one of these topics would be a number of lectures throughout a semester. And, you know, exercise science programs are four years long. So there's a lot to talk about, a lot of depth, a lot of information. And so you're right, we've, we've only just really scratched the surface on this topic. Well, Dr. Koenefek, hopefully that means we can get you back and, and take one particular area and, and dive a little deeper. But it was an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Yes, with, well, I enjoyed it very much. I'm, I'm happy to come back whenever you like. So yeah, please feel free. Terrific. Thank you to you both. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Robert Kenefick, Dr. Stacey Sims, Dr. Stephen Chung, Jared Berg, Alex Howes, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.